1: When Laura Kaplan was 24 years old, she found out about an underground network of women. They had a very simple code name, Jane. This was 1971, about two years before the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade. Laura was living in Chicago, where abortion was illegal, as it was in much of the U.S. She first heard about Jane from her friend Alice. Alice had seen an ad in an underground newspaper that said, Pregnant? don't want to be, called Jane. So Alice called the number. Jane was helping women get abortions, women like Alice. And
2: afterwards, Alice told Laura about it. She was so excited by the experience that she was almost literally bouncing off the walls. I mean, she had just had an illegal abortion and here she is, like, thrilled and delighted.
1: Laura said Alice had felt cared for.
2: What she explained to me is that the experience was so unique and so unusual. There was so much education, and it was so centered on her. She'd never had an experience like that, and it was mind-blowing in a way.
1: And Laura wanted to be a part of that, part of Jane. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Report's I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 13th. Today, the story of Jane from one of its members, Laura Kaplan. She also wrote a book about the group, and she estimates that Jane helped more than 11,000 people obtain illegal abortions between 1969 and 1973. There is a lot of interest now in what the group did then, as activists and health advocates mobilize again in
2: anticipation of the end of Roe v. Wade. I mean, they can pass whatever laws they want, but it is not going to stop women from doing what they need to do, even at the cost of their health and their life, potentially.
1: So before Roe. What were the options if a woman was pregnant and she didn't know what to do? Like, what were the choices that she had? And what were the hurdles or dangers that she faced?
2: Well, if she was rich, she could go to another country if you had money. If you had Mm -hmm. no money, you were SOL, as they say. So there were, you know, I'm sure your friends, your neighbors— had ideas of people they could refer you to, how competent those people were, was a crapshoot. And um, it was very common that women would be sexually exploited. You know, you're already pregnant, so what's the difference? Um, Sometimes uh, these practitioners feigned an abortion that they didn't perform. Oh, wow. And certainly there were many, many cases of people who didn't know what they were doing, and women wound up dying and severely injured. At Cook County Hospital, the large public hospital in Chicago, at that time, there was a, a ward just devoted to women with complications from illegal abortions. And if you talk to doctors from that period, they will tell you that ward was almost always full.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah. And Illinois also in Chicago made the habit of a a woman came in with complications from an illegal abortion, the police were called. So it was a very, very difficult, dangerous, life-threatening situation for women, but it didn't stop women. And that's what I don't think people get right now. I mean, they can pass whatever laws they want. But it is not going to stop women from doing what they need to do, even at the cost of their health and their life, potentially.
1: In response to these kinds of hardships, the
2: women of Jane came together in the late 1960s. The way we started was not unique. How we evolved was unique. Um, and we started, like a lot of other women's liberation groups around the country, deciding we wanted to do something to help women navigate the illegal abortion world. And so we organized to sort of suss out the providers around and find the competent ones, uh, the ones who weren't going to exploit women sexually physically uh, who did competent abortions, prepare women for those experiences through counseling and help raise money because illegal abortions were very expensive. You know, I often say to people, the average illegal abortion was about $500 and you could rent a decent apartment in Chicago for about $150 Oh just to give you a sense of how expensive they were four or five months of rent (laughs) yeah groups all over the country were doing this and that's how we started now the person who organized the group Heather Booth she had started this all starting with one then two then it sort of mushroomed Uh, more requests for help finding an abortion. So she got the original list together of uh, the doctors who were uh, competent and trustworthy. Um, At some point in late 68, she said to herself, this is really getting too, this is too big a deal. This is too much for me. I have to organize a group. So tell
1: me more about the women who were involved in Jane. Like who who were they and and what what were they like? What what kinds of, you know, were they were they working women, were they not working women? Like tell me a little bit about them as a as a whole. Well,
2: the youngest of us was 19 and the oldest were in their 40s. Most of us were in our 20s. We were students, hippies, uh, teachers, social workers, all those things. Mm -hmm. The group was always primarily white, although there were always a few women of color in the group. It was Mm -hmm. primarily white middle-class women in this group. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of us were very politically active. Some were not so politically active, but all of us were drawn to doing something concrete to alleviate the suffering in women's lives.
1: Well, so how did that actually work? Like if I were opening up the newspaper, seeing this ad, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane. And
2: so I call the number in the ad and then what happens? So at that point people called on number 643-3844. And uh, they got a recording that said, this is Jane from Women's Liberation. If you need our assistance, leave your name and number and someone will call you back. So then one of us, the person we called Callback Jane, because we were not very creative with names, would uh, take the names off the machine and call women back and say, this is Jane, how can I help you? We always wanted the woman to say what she wanted rather than for us to, you know, suggest it.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. But can, can you say
2: more about that? Why, why you felt strongly about that? Because we weren't foisting abortion on anyone. From the minute she called, everything we did was to underline the fact that was, she was making a decision about her life
1: So then what happened in the process, like once you got on the phone with her?
2: So the callback Jane would get basic information, name, address, phone number, her age, uh, how many previous pregnancies, how many kids, how many miscarriages, um, whether she had any health problems, when her last monthly period was, whether she was allergic to anything, and how much she could afford. So that information was put on three by five cards. And then uh, they went to Big Jane. And Big Jane, again, very creative, was the scheduler, the main sort of Jane central, was the person who did all the scheduling of our work days. And the cards also got passed around at meetings to counselors. So uh, if I was counseling someone, I would call them up and I'd say, this is Laura. Jane gave me your number. So then women would come to our apartments and we'd make pots of tea mm. and and then we'd explain everything, um, not just what happened in the abortion, but everything that would happen that day, who they would see, what things would feel like, what they could expect, because we knew what made you terrified was the not knowing.
1: Yeah. Well, what was the reaction of some of the women who you were counseling or who came over to your apartment to talk about this? I mean, having it all, having all that information presented
2: to them, what was the reaction? Well, let me just add, when we did more than that, we realized that women didn't, you know, now you go into a bookstore and there's a whole section on women's health. There was nothing. So we had the original newsprint copies of our bodies ourselves, which we handed out to women like candy. You know, we'd say, (laughs) "Take one for your sister or your friend or whoever." And we spent a lot of time talking about birth control methods because we didn't want to see women again. And most of the people we counseled knew so little about their bodies or how their bodies worked. A lot of what we did was educational.
1: Yeah, like I'm imagining these women sitting in your apartment who are i'm sure very scared and very worried about the future and like what were they like like can you describe kind of
2: what it was like for them to go through this this experience i'm sure they were completely terrified i mean they were entrusting their lives to you know in my case you know kind of hippies <laughs> and um they were desperate you know, why would you do this if you weren't desperate? Mm-hmm. So um we tried to assuage their fears as much as we could. You know, and as our name spread around, uh, especially the black community on the south side and the west side, the message that went out was, you can trust these women. They're not in it for the money. Hmm. But still... You know, we were above board about the fact that we weren't doctors. Mm-hmm. And we would say to women, we're not doing this to you, but with you. We're, we, we're kind of partners in crime. So we rely on you to protect us and we'll do our best to take care of you as well. But I'm sure they were all terrified. You know, I, I imagine it. You know, you're going to some strange part of the city. You're meeting with somebody who doesn't look like you, who has a different background than you. And then you're trusting that you're going to come out of this alive. And, you know, when I interviewed people for the book, I remember one counselor actually saying to me after she counseled somebody and went through the whole thing and the birth control and everything that would happen. And then the woman turned to her and said, "Will i be alive afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because that's what we knew about illegal abortions was that you died from them. Yeah. So, you know, there's no minimizing the terror and the desperation, the hand-in-hand desperation and terror that women felt.
1: And I also imagine it must have been somewhat scary for you all. I mean— Aiding someone and getting an abortion that was illegal, I'm sure, put you all at legal risk as well. Like, how are you navigating those risks? Were you worried about going to jail?
2: Well, we were committing multiple felonies every day we worked, and we were aware of that. You know, you don't forget the risk you're taking, but it can't be right in front of you all the time because then you can't move forward. In the context of the times, there were a lot of people breaking laws for justice. Hmm. And that certainly started with the civil rights movement, breaking Jim Crow laws for equality and justice. And so, you know, that sort of carried us through, but we were all worried. The other side of it, as I said to you, we were primarily white middle-class women. There was a lot of denial. You know, we weren't going to get busted. We were doing a service for the community. How could they... Yeah,
1: that no one is ultimately going to actually throw these middle-class white women in jail.
2: Yeah, we had privilege. But a lot of it was just plain denial because every time the group was confronted with reality, people left the group
1: After the break, we talk about why some of their assumptions about not ending up in jail proved to be wrong. And how members of Jane went from counseling women on abortions to performing abortions themselves. We'll be right back.
0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: As Jane evolved, the group set up makeshift abortion clinics in people's apartments. Often women brought their kids with them because they didn't have childcare. They held women's hands and gave them instructions for aftercare. And if something went wrong, they brought the women to the hospital. In the early days, they'd worked with a few different doctors around the city. Eventually, they started working regularly with a man named Mike. And a trust started to develop between Mike and Jody, one of the group's founders.
2: Jody had convinced Mike to let us sit in during the abortions. Or at least a few of us that he knew and trusted. And at some point, while she was with him during an abortion, he said... Here, why don't you try... You know, he sort of started handing her an instrument. And she said to me, I said, No, I, I you know, I don't want to tr- touch these things. And he sort of convinced her to do it. And then once she started, she realized she really could do this. And by extension, if she could do it, then we could do it.
1: Mike was very charming. But more importantly, he was extremely competent.
2: You know, women... uh like 10 days after their abortions went for post abortion checkups and we had nothing but rave feedback from GYNs that they were all in great shape but
1: eventually Jody found out that Mike wasn't actually a doctor then the rest
2: of the group found out too so it was revealed at a meeting and people went nuts You know, there were people in the group who were crying, who said, we're just like all the back alley abortions. We have to fold. Hmm. And um, actually, one woman at the meeting said, well, if he can do it and he's not a doctor, then we could do it, too. And we can charge a whole lot less. But there were people who left the group and that was it for them. They were out. Well, they weren't going to do it anymore.
1: When you look back on the fact that you all were starting to do these procedures, how do you feel about that? Like, do you think that, you know, you you learned a lot by watching and were perfectly capable of doing this? Or is part of you like, we, we shouldn't have been doing that? Or that there is something at risk when you have people who are not trained doctors doing these kinds of medical procedures? And
2: Absolutely. We were extremely lucky hmm Extremely lucky. I mean, something really bad could have happened, and it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime you put an instrument inside the uterus, there are possible problems. You know, we knew what we knew, but that's all we knew. Yeah. You know, certainly it was risky, but what – we were young. We were in our 20s, mostly. and And, you know, when you're young, this is – Radical action, in a way, is a young person's game because mm. you're a little bit stupid and you're a little bit arrogant. And willing to take risks. And willing to take risks.
1: And, I mean, if I can jump in here, I mean, you you write about one woman who had sought help from Jane, though she didn't get an abortion from the group, but that she ended up dying. Can you talk about the circumstances here? And and I, I feel like that really creates a picture of
2: the, of the stakes here for these women. Yeah, she came to us so severely infected that she was told there was nothing we could do and she had to go Mm -hmm. to a hospital right away and she didn't. She waited. And so by the time she went, it was really too late and it was horrific. It was just just a horrible, horrible, senseless, needless death of a young woman. I mean, I I don't know what more I can say about it. It terrified us. Yeah. Did it make anyone change their minds about what you, you all were bet. doing? You You know, when I said when you got confronted by reality, this is one of the times where people left the group and said, I'm out of here, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't our fault. And that's the thing. When you force women to do these, to take these risks, who knows what she did or who she went to and what they did to her. But this is going to happen again. I mean, it's not going away.
1: Even though some members of Jane were in denial about the possibility of jail time, eventually some of them did get arrested.
2: In May of 72, there was a raid on a place we were working. And it happened to be, occasionally we rented an apartment. We used our apartments and our friends' apartments. Um, but in this case, this was a place we had rented on in South Shore in Chicago. And we got busted by the homicide squad. Hmm. The women who got busted spent a night in jail. Mm-hmm. One got out early because she was a nursing mother. The rest spent a night at jail, and then they got bailed out. The next day. And um, their lawyer told them that there was a case in the Supreme Court and it looked like it was going to go their way. And if it did, this whole thing could go away. And that's what happened. In January, Roe v. Wade was decided. And I don't remember how much later the case was thrown out of court. Now, Illinois could have charged everybody with practicing medicine without a license, but they didn't do that. So we lucked out. Those seven people lucked out. Otherwise, they could have been facing serious prison terms.
1: So can you tell me, like, where you were and and what that day was like when you heard about
2: Roe v. Wade and realized how that was going to affect you? I do remember we had a party that night to celebrate, and then we had to make a decision. And we had some very difficult meetings about what we were going to do. There were people in the group who felt like what we did was so unique and not like any other medical experience women had had that we should continue doing what we were doing. Um, Others of us felt like we had been really lucky. And once uh, there were clinics and doctors doing abortions legally, we wouldn't have any protection. You know, we thought, oh, we're doing such a service to the community and we'll be protected. You know, we're keeping women from dying. Uh, That would all be gone. And and quite frankly, I think we were burned out. I mean, this was Mm. really intense. We were on call. You know, you never knew when you were going to get a phone call from somebody having a post-abortion problem or getting busted, or any of the myriad things that could have happened. Hmm. And I think we were tired. It was my whole life at that point, and I was for folding. Hmm. You know, you come together, and when I say you, I mean anyone who takes on a, a task to right a wrong, to provide justice, and to take care of the least among us. Um, You know, when that task is no longer needed, it's time to move on and do something else.
1: What was your reaction when you saw this news about the draft decision um, that could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade? I can't say
2: I was surprised, given the current makeup of the court and the Trump uh, appointees, Um, I wasn't surprised. I mean, it's depressing. It's like, are you kidding me? Are we going backwards? You know, in the last couple of years, three Catholic countries, Ireland, Argentina, and Mexico have all legalized abortion. Mm -hmm. And we are turning into a theocracy and going backwards. It's uh, horrifying. But, you know, women aren't going back. I asked Laura if she could
1: envision a future where some new version of Jane operated in states where abortion might soon be illegal again.
2: I am sure that women all over the country are sitting down to figure out what they can do. Um, And I always say, you know, you start with what you can do today. Mm. We certainly, none of us, when we started, thought, oh, we'll just learn how to do abortions and we'll do them ourselves. (laughs) You know, that was like, whoa, you must be out of your mind. As long as you keep the needs for justice and love and caring for people in your heart, you don't know where that first step of what you can do today, right here, right now, will lead you.
1: Laura Kaplan, thank you so much for sharing your story with
2: us. Thank you for speaking with me. its I would like to say it's been a pleasure, but given the circumstances, I don't think that's quite the right word.
1: Laura Kaplan is the author of The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Today's show was produced by Robin Amer. It was edited by Maggie Penman with help from Rennie Svarnovsky and Alexis Diao. It was mixed by Sean Carter. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our editor is Alexis Diao. Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnick, and Renu Svarnovsky are producers. Sabby Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The Post Director of Audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.